Okay, the third section of the lectures on jihad will cover the issues of conquests in the later medieval period, the crystallization of jihad theory, and uh, and uh, uh, modernist interpretations of jihad, all the way up to the beginnings of the 20th century. Now, we've already discussed the questions about conquests. Uh, conquests are not an easy question to answer about whether or not they're to be considered to be jihad. Uh, the earliest Islamic conquests are problematic in that regard. Middle uh, ones are less problematic. But uh, when we get to the issue of the Crusades, uh, we face a, a number of different problems about polemics and mutual misunderstandings. The Crusades are a period of time in which uh, the Muslim and Christian worlds came into collision uh, that had been building up for some centuries beforehand. Um, starting in 1097, uh, the Pope initiated a number of people movements and soldier movements that ultimately culminated in the domination of the, uh, of the eastern uh, section of the Mediterranean world by... Latins and French speakers that lasted for about 200 years. But the Crusades were part of an overall movement of Christianity or Christians against uh, various different Islamic excursions into, uh, into Europe, especially in Spain and in Sicily. In those areas, they were much more successful, ultimately uh, pushing the Muslims out of Spain and Sicily. Now, the Muslim reaction to the Crusades was very hesitant, very, very hesitant. Um, there's no feeling in the initial chronicles about the fall of Jerusalem in 1099 that it was some sort of great catastrophe or something. Really, one has to wait for about 50 years before the appearance of actual jihad literature that deals with the Crusaders. This is quite remarkable and quite embarrassing for present-day uh, Muslim scholars who view the fall of Jerusalem as being kind of a, of a cataclysmic or apocalyptic event that should have been noticed by all Muslims at that particular time. But definitely from, uh, from the t uh, 1140s, uh, the, uh, the 1140s onward, uh, jihad literature becomes a lot more prominent in Arabic uh, as a means by which Muslims are being encouraged to come and fight, to join uh, as a religious struggle against the Crusaders. And so this leads to an upswing, mostly governmentally financed and encouraged, of jihad literature uh, that is in the same spirit, mostly, except for its anti-governmental side, uh, as uh, that of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak's uh, several centuries before. And the fact that, uh, that this struggle was focused so squarely upon the area of Syria, the self-same area in which Abdullah bin al-Mubarak had fought, the self-same area in which many apocalyptic predictions were, were localized, uh, gave that area continued prominence. Um, the jihad literature, however, ran into a problematic issue, and that was uh, when the Mongols began to appear in the Muslim world. The two huge things that the Mongols did were the first one in 1258 was to kill the last accepted Abbasid caliph, 
Now, although the caliph had uh, had been in decreasing prominence really for some centuries before then, uh, he gave a certain amount of legitimacy to Sunnism that has been lacking ever since his time. Um, we'll come back to the issue, that issue shortly. And the second thing is, is that they converted to Islam, but converted in a fairly nominal or traditional way that was unacceptable to, uh, to the dominant uh, figures of Sunni Islam at the time. And so the question raised, it was raised, what is the responsibility of Muslims vis-a-vis the Mongols? These Mongols, uh, in many ways, were much more friendly to the Christians or to the Buddhist population of their empire. Um, they did not give prominence to Islam even after they had converted to Islam. And so that led to a feeling like that jihad against nominal Muslims, against uh, people who were not uh, affirming the traditional dominance of Islam was even of a higher importance than fighting actual non-Muslims. This is best exemplified in the figure of Ibn Taymiyyah, who died in 1328. Ibn Taymiyyah is uh, is a polemical and problematic figure inside Sunni Islam. Uh, During his own lifetime, he was considered to be insane. Uh, He spent a good deal of his time in prisons, uh, or leading various different pogroms against Jews and Christians, uh, and was generally considered to be rather imbalanced. Uh, but today, his writings are of supreme importance and are regularly reprinted uh, and distributed everywhere. Um, he is literally the C.S. Lewis of, uh, of radical Islam. Um, his every single writing is regurgitated everywhere. And uh, from a jihad point of view, his most important issues were resolving, at least for, uh, for himself and his followers, the question about what has the precedence of fighting inside Islam. And he, uh, he examined the differences between, for example, non-Muslims and uh, Mongols. Is it possible or, uh, or permissible to fight the Mongols, because they are nominal Muslims and uh, present more of a danger to Islam than those uh, than uh, the non-Muslims, such as the Crusaders. By the time of Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, the Crusaders were pretty much enfeebled and didn't present much of a problem for uh, for Muslims overall. In any case, so he came to the conclusion that actually the the Mongols were much more of a danger. This uh, conclusion has profound ramifications for uh, the contemporary period, where, as I said, contemporary radical Islam does rely upon that issue of takfir, takfir being a declaration of apparent Muslims as being non-Muslims, in order to resolve doctrinal issues and create boundaries uh, around what we can call true Islam. Ibn Taymiyyah really was one of the first to, uh, to understand that and to try and recreate Islam as a doctrinal religion. Doctrinal religion and Islam traditionally were not synonymous. In general, Islam has been a, an orthopraxy. In other words, people did not 
look very closely at what one believed so much as what one did, most especially attendance of the five prayers. If one attended the five prayers and did not make oneself to be obnoxious, then pretty much you could believe whatever you wanted to believe. And the truth is, is that Sunnism as a belief system is extremely broad in its traditional manner. And, uh, and it's possible to be just about anything and be a Sunni. As a matter of fact, Shiites oftentimes accuse Sunnis of being nothing, believing in nothing in particular because being, being a Sunni is so broad. So Ibn Taymiyyah really did have something that he believed in, and he had very firm boundaries around it, and those boundaries enabled him to say what was a Muslim, what was not a Muslim, what could be fought, what must be protected, and so forth. For him, the lands of Islam were those uh, lands that were ruled by Muslims who upheld uh, the Sharia and made Islam into the normative uh, and dominant faith of the country. Now, beyond the Crusades, uh, you find the Ottoman conquests. And there's a lot of uh, scholars that today will deny that the Ottoman conquests of, of, uh, of the Balkans were actually jihad. That they will point out the fact that there's very many shifting alliances and so forth. Some of the people there are Christians, and how could you fight a, a jihad with, uh, with Christians on, on, on your side and so forth? And so it's clear that, uh, that by the 14-1500s, the jihad does have some problems declaring what are absolute lines between belief and infidelity in terms of warfare. The warfare that's being fought is not, is not pure from an Islamic point of view. Sometimes Christians join in on the Muslim side, sometimes Muslims go over to the other side, and so forth. And so the, the, those lines are blurred on a continual basis. But jihad continues to be very important and crucial in the peripheral areas of Islam. And by peripheral areas, I mean Africa, I mean Indonesia, I mean Central Asia, and most especially in India. And in all of those areas, you find a continual development of jihad practice and actuality throughout uh, the time period between the 1400s and all the way up into the colonial period in the early 20th century. Now, some of the characteristics that we have to note about these types of jihads. First of all, there are always ones in which the Muslim side it represents a culturally or technologically uh, superior side than, their, than its opponents. And in general, that has been one of the attractive features uh, of Islam to, uh, to its opponents, is that it represents a high culture, a technologically achieving culture, uh, as opposed to its animist or pagan uh, opponents, or Hindu opponents. Um, however, the one place where that was not the case was especially against uh, Christian Europe in the Middle Ages, where basically the Ottomans and uh, their Christian opponents were more or less on an equal uh, fighting plane. 
So those peripheral areas were basically dominated by this sort of sense that Muslims and Islam represented civilization and that they would fight those people that they considered to be non-civilized and gradually assimilate them into, uh, into the world of Islam. There's frequent use of jihad in cases like that for purification of the Muslim community. And the reasons are easy to see. Most of those conquests that happened along the periphery basically created a society that was either nominal Muslim or it was very highly syncretistic. It had elements of Islam, elements of paganism, sometimes elements of Hinduism, and mixed them all together and did not create what we might call a Muslim society, a Muslim state. And so a large number of the jihads of the periphery were basically fought to create what we might call normative Islam. Probably the one that is the best known is that of Sheikh Osman Danfodio in uh, what is today northern Nigeria during the period following 1804 when uh, he fought to create uh, what he called a Muslim state throughout northern Nigeria, parts of Chad, and uh, southern Niger. We'll come back to his importance uh, shortly. Another issue that holds these ones together is the, uh, is the dominance of the word hijra. We haven't mentioned the word hijra that often in these lectures so far. Hijra was what uh, the, uh, the Prophet Muhammad used in, uh, in 622 when he moved from the city of Mecca, which uh, the community of Muslims found life there to be intolerable, to the oasis town of, uh, of Medina, which was his capital for the rest of his life. Now, Hijra, in that particular case, we might call fleeing to save one's life, because definitely the life of the prophet was under some amount of danger, although one shouldn't play it up that much, but it was under some amount of danger. But the concept of hijra, as it comes into jihad doctrine, is something quite different. And there we could call it something like tactical regrouping. In other words, it's the tendency of Muslims, especially in these peripheral jihads, to uh, extract from all the different communities in which they're located various different elements, and then group them together in one concentrated mass, uh, usually in an outlying area, uh, uh, maybe of strategic value, maybe not, um, but a place where they can actually uh, then uh, group together and attack. And that's precisely what the uh, what Sheikh Osman Danfodio did. As he had been a wandering mendicant preacher for some, uh, for some years, he gathered together his group uh, in an out-of-the-way place, then began to marshal them together uh, for warfare, and eventually was successful in his jihad. So for him, it's not surprising that his manual of jihad is actually called Bayan Wujubu Hijra, the explanation of the necessity of hijra. In other words... For him, hijra was a precondition for waging jihad. It wasn't just something that was uh, convenient for the Muslims to leave their societies and so forth. It was actually necessary 
um, almost on the level of a conscription. At a later time, uh, hijra comes to mean something considerably different. And that has to do with the cumulative defeats that the Muslims suffered, uh, especially at the hands of colonial uh, regimes. And hijra for them then meant the process of being unwilling to live under uh, foreign or uh, or non-Muslim domination, and so the necessity for them to actually leave and find some particular other areas where they could go. Now, progressively throughout the 19th century, that became more and more difficult. Uh, for example, when uh, the uh, uh, when the state of, of Sheikh Osman Donfodio, uh, when his his descendants at the turn of the 20th century were conquered by the British, they sought to flee into Niger, but unfortunately found that it was dominated by the French. And so they literally couldn't find any place that was, dom- that was not dominated by some sort of Christian or colonial power. Um, others, uh, when the Chinese Muslims uh, tried to establish a Muslim state in the 1870s, and they were suppressed uh, fairly brutally by the uh, by the Chinese authorities. Then they sought to flee into uh, the area controlled by Russia. But was that any better? That's really hard to say. Their descendants remain there to this very day, uh, and still maintain their their cultural distinctiveness. It's rather interesting that w- at a later time, when uh, when Russian Muslims revolted against the Tsar and the communist uh, regime, then they fled into China. And so there's there's a process of a kind of lacking of any any place to go. Many of those, I might add, also fled to Saudi Arabia, where they continued also to have a, a culturally distinctive uh, grouping. Um, Indian Muslims, uh, especially after the 1850s, when there was really no Muslim state uh, that was not under the control of the British, uh, sought to flee to some place that was not controlled by the British, which ended up being Afghanistan. Um, and other different uh, groups, such as the Bosnians or the Albanians, as uh, they would come under uh, Christian or Western control, would also sometimes try and flee uh, to, uh, to the Ottoman Empire. So those different types of hijra are important because they're very connected, they're very closely connected to jihad. Um, but the last one is really an answer to that question, which we asked at the end of the last session, about what is the end of the jihad? And it's interesting how in both cases, really the beginning of jihad is oftentimes hijra, and the end of jihad, if it's a failure, is oftentimes also hijra. Um, so it, uh, it pretty much uh, gives some sort of closure to that, uh, to that issue. Um, another point uh, of jihad in the periphery is its close identification with Sufism. And we've talked in the past about, uh, about the, uh, the Sufi ascetic warrior. Okay, this figure follows, in the, again, in the footsteps of Abdullah bin al-Mubarak, who I might add, in addition to being the writer of the Kitab al-Jihad, also wrote a very large compilation called Kitab al-Zuhud wa-Rakayak, the book of asceticism and compassionate stories. And so he's also one of the first ones to bring together what I call pre-Sufi teachings uh, together in one compilation. Now, he himself was not a Sufi, but he was clearly an ascetic. And uh, really from 
that particular period, there was actually a very close alliance between these early Sufis and uh, and um, uh, and the jihad uh, warriors. Many of the many of them overlapped. Now that alliance gradually frayed throughout uh, throughout the history of uh, of later Islam, and by the time of Ibn Taymiyyah. There was a certain hostility that had grown up between the uh, the jihadis and uh, and the Sufis, which is very strongly reflected in the writings of Ibn Taymiyyah, where he uh, attacks the Sufis for uh, what we might call their um, uh, their syncretistic uh, practices. We'll come back to that point when we talk about contemporary Islamic uh, radical uh, beliefs towards Sufis, but. Most of the peripheral jihads were fought by uh, various different figures who were Sufi in origin and oftentimes fought on the basis of Sufism. Again, probably one of the best examples is that of uh, Sheikh Usman Danfodio, who was very strongly connected to the Sufi Qadri order. And uh, that has profound implications today. It's very difficult for radicals in Nigeria, for example, to get around the fact that everybody knows that Sheikh Osman Danfodio, the star of jihad in West Africa, was also a Sufi. They very strongly don't want him to be, but uh, in fact he was. And even worse, even worse if they knew was the fact that Ibn Taymiyyah himself was actually a Sufi. Though he was very critical of Sufism, it has been established without any shadow of a doubt that he was actually also a member of the Qadri order. So there's a very close identification between Sufism and these, uh, and these jihad movements. And I'll just list off a few of them in various different places. Uh, most of them fought against uh, various different colonial incursions into the world of Islam. With the exception of Sheikh Osman Donfodio. Osman Donfodio did not fight against any uh, non-Muslims, any Europeans. He, he fought uh, solely against nominal Muslims in order to create a Muslim state. But at a later time, his spiritual descendants, uh, such as uh, Sheikh Omar Tal, who fought against the French in, uh, in Senegal and Mauritania, or Muhammad Abdullahi Hassan, uh, who's one of the, the founding ancestors of uh, Somalian nationalism, who fought the British uh, for about 25 years uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Then uh, Imam Shamil, uh, who uh, established a small state in what today we'll call Chechnya um, in the Caucasus, uh, fighting against the Russians uh, who were advancing throughout the 1840s and 1850s. And then a number, a number of different uh, prominent Indian Muslims who sought to fight against the uh, the the, uh, the advancing of the British uh, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, one of the problems that we have right there is the fact that, with the exception of Sheikh Osman Danfodio's jihad, all of those uh, jihads were were failures. They all fought against technologically superior foes, and ultimately their leaders and many of their followers were extinguished. And it was a problem to know what precisely to do after that. For the most part, 
the ulama, as they were accustomed to doing, uh, made some sort of compromise with the colonial power. Um, and some of them with the rationalization, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. But some of them were just simply tired of fighting, and it was more convenient for them to associate themselves closely with a dominant power uh, who would allow them usually to have some sort of power over their own community uh, from a religious point of view. But as I said, there were certain groups of Muslims that were simply unable to accept that. They would perform hijra and, uh, and leave. That, that raised additional questions about what is the status of those Muslims who did not leave, for whom it was impossible to leave. You know, are they any less Muslims than, uh, than those that, uh, that actually did leave? Now, Sheikh Osman Donfodio did manage to, the one example of a successful jihadi state, uh, managed to, uh, managed to found an idealized state, but even he ran up against, uh, against a superior Muslim state, which he tried to attack and which brought his jihad to an end in 1812. Uh, that was the state of, of Borno Khanum that had been, uh, in what is today the, uh, the area of Chad and had been fighting jihad for centuries. And basically, when they received a proclamation from Sheikh Osman Donfodio saying uh, that he was a legitimate imam and that they should, they should submit to him, they said, who the heck are you? <laughs> Where were you 500 years ago when we were fighting you know, the, the, the black Africans? And, so, and they fought the the forces of the Fulani jihad to a standstill and ultimately brought the uh, the their jihad to a close. And so that that point there illustrates the problems of the the expansive nature of jihads on a regular basis. Those that are successful oftentimes don't know when to stop because the basic ideology is a totalizing one. If uh, Sheikh Osman Donfodio had stopped earlier, then he presumably could have ach- achieved some sort of an alliance with uh, with uh, the uh, um, uh, the Sultanate of, ba- of Borno Khanum, and maybe even expanded Islam rather than just attacking Muslims. He chose not to do that. Um, the the question of who is the authority. Uh, once again, regularly presented itself throughout this time period. Um, and after the killing of the last caliph in 1258, um, for Sunnis, the, that was a serious problem. Um, there was a shadow group of caliphs uh, that lived in the Egyptian court until 1517. Um, and then after that, then the Ottoman uh, sultans took the title of caliph until 1922, but since that particular time, then who has been the caliph? Who has the authority to declare jihad? Who has the authority to rule, at least from a spiritual point of view, inside the Muslim world is a severe problem. And really it's one that uh, that Sunnism has not resolved uh, to this very day. So the overall legacy of jihad has been in this particular case, really in the 19th century, defeat and failure. And so it led inexorably to, uh, to polemical issues, both polemical issues within the Muslim community 
where hard questions were asked by those people left behind after the jihadis departed. Um, are you? What, was there much point in fighting this jihad? Was this uh, was this something that was worthwhile? And where does that lead us right now, when we're physically and militarily incapable of uh, handling the, uh, the the colonialists? So this uh, leads very neatly into the appearance of the movement, uh, which we call modernist interpretations of Islam. Modernist interpretations of jihad. And not surprisingly, the modernists begin to appear during that period immediately after the disastrous defeats of, uh, of, uh, of Muslims in India and in Egypt, India in the, in the 1850s, uh, Egypt in the 1880s, where Muslim, the Muslim leadership is beginning to reassess the usefulness of jihad and whether it can be interpreted in the way that it had been in the past. And so modernist uh, interpretations of jihad are, first of all, the result of failure and defeat, and second of all, the result of the polemical attacks of Christian missionaries. Christian missionaries began to, uh, especially in India, polemicize with, uh, with prominent Muslim ulama. This was a new sensation for, for the ulama. They had never, ever had to actually deal on an intellectual and religious basis with a group that actually they despised on a fairly even uh, playing field. And so consequently, they did not come off that well. Uh, it took them almost 50 years to develop a type of uh, apologetic style that uh, would be convincing. Uh, one of the major attacks that the early Christian missionaries used on, uh, on Islam was this idea that jihad and violence are the primary methods by which Islam has been spread. Now, personally, I must admit that I have a problem with that accusation. Um, I won't say that it isn't an attractive one, because Muslims themselves affirm it on a regular basis. And when one looks at the process of conquest and domination and so forth, it's easy to come to that conclusion. But I don't think that the vast bulk of Muslims were actually converted as a result of some type of direct, I will kill you or else you will convert to Islam sort of uh, offer. Um, the vast bulk of Muslims, in my opinion, were probably converted by Sufi holy men um, and various different other economic pressures that were developed during the early uh, Islamic period. But at any rate, suffice it to say that the Muslim history, the way it's presented by Muslims, very strongly affirms the idea that, and this is as a result of people like Abdullah bin Mubarak, that, uh, that, that jihad is the driving force behind Muslim, uh, Muslim history, and that Islam is primarily spread by the sword. And so Christian missionaries took that particular aspect and used it to attack Islam and, and to declare it to be a, a religion of violence. This took, uh, this took Muslims by surprise. Uh, and it's real easy to see the reasons uh, why that happened. Um, they had never really expected 
their own books and their own manuscripts actually to be used against them uh, for polemical purposes because Islam uh, traditionally had been very closely tied to the achievement of power, of dominance. Uh, It had been strictly illegal for any non-Muslim to read the Quran or to defile it in any way. Uh, And so up till that particular time, basically Islam was fairly much in control of knowledge about Islam. It's true, during medieval, uh, medieval Europe, there were a lot of uh, people who, uh, who studied Islam in certain different ways. Many of them were monks, some of them were early scholars and so forth. But in the overwhelming sense, really up until, up until the middle of the 19th century, Muslims were still pretty much in control of the, of the discourse about Islam. And so to find a, a very aggressive missionary religion like Christianity that could actually take the materials that Muslims themselves had written and use them against Islam was a completely new and shocking sensation. And so it's not surprising that that led to an actual reevaluation of a teaching such as jihad. The reevaluation began to appear by the 1870s and 1880s, where, especially in India, but then later in Egypt, and to some extent in French uh, Muslim areas, you began to find writings that uh, de-emphasized the violent nature of jihad and proclaimed it to oftentimes be solely defensive. In other words, if uh, if a conqueror appeared in Muslim lands, then... Uh, then uh, Muslims had the right to defend themselves. Again, something not unknown from other different sources and can be easily backed up by, uh, by Western legal opinion as well. Um, and to emphasize that issue of the internal jihad. Now, the internal jihad is something that we've alluded to on a number of different occasions during these, uh, during these lectures. Um, the internal jihad speaks of jihad as being within the heart, uh, focused upon one's sinful nature, one's, uh, one's evil desires, sometimes against the wiles of Satan. Um, but the basic idea behind it is uh, self-purification, and uh, usually that's coupled together with Sufi rites and meditations. Now it's pretty obvious that such a the, the such a type of jihad would preclude at least apparently violence. And so it became rather disingenuous for uh for Muslim apologists at this particular point to uh to begin to say that this was the primary manifestation of jihad. This is what we still find in the literature today. In my opinion, it, uh, a lot of scholars get taken in by it, either willingly or unwillingly, um, because it does present Islam in a much more erratic and socially a- acceptable manner than otherwise would be the case. The problems with uh, this interpretation are fairly obvious. First of all, it has historically very a weak uh, basis uh, within Islam. Um, and second of all, it doesn't have very much prominence in languages that are Muslim. In other words, where one finds extensive discussions about the uh, internal jihad, 
and the Irenic nature of jihad within uh, European languages, such as English, French, uh, Dutch uh, for uh, for Indonesians and so forth, and and other different uh, non-Muslim languages, one doesn't find the same sort of extensive and detailed discussions of the internal jihad uh, within Muslim languages. As a matter of fact, it's very, very difficult to find even a single book uh, until the very, very recent past, and here by that I mean actually just two years ago, um, that's actually on the subject of the internal jihad. And so, overall, the issue of the, of the internal jihad seems to me to be very much of kind of a red herring that has been developed in order uh, specifically to avoid the question of, a, of the meaning of violent jihad. And here, I don't want to, to, uh, to extensively uh, vilify Muslims for embrace of jihad, because it's simply a method of warfare, but merely to point out that I think that it's, it's a historically inaccurate statement to say that, uh, that the primary meaning of jihad throughout the centuries has been of an internal nature. I think that that is a false statement and that one has to look at the primacy of military action, especially during the time of the life of the, of the prophet, uh, in order to find the, the, the core of jihad and that uh, the internal jihad, to the extent which it existed, uh, is a secondary uh, development. So, but modernist developments of, of jihad were also very interesting. And they began to reassess and move away from classical interpretations of jihad uh, in several different ways. First of all, they didn't necessarily need to avoid the issue of violence. It's true that those that, uh, that, that wrote in the 19th century and early 20th century oftentimes tended to move in that direction, never so far as to actually make Islam into a pacifistic religion, but to de-emphasize the role of violence or to at least place some sort of onus upon non-Muslims for participating in violence more than Muslims. But uh, by the middle of the 20th century, the modernists had definitely developed a discourse that was use, uh, using uh, Western language and pretty much imposing it upon, uh, upon Muslim uh, activities. And that was very convenient. One could use uh, language that was taken essentially from Marxism uh, and speak about the liberation of the Arabian Peninsula from capitalist domination, as it were, in the 6th and 7th century, and speak about these things in a way that was actually communicating things to the larger world uh, that would be obfuscated were one to use traditional Muslim language. Now that's very closely associated with the rise of uh, Abu al al-Madudi, the uh, well-known uh, Pakistani, Indian-Pakistani uh, thinker who died in 1979. This is a figure who made a maximum effort to integrate classical material into the contemporary world. 
And so it's not surprising that he was very frustrated in a place like India where conservatism very strongly dominated Islam. Uh, one of the reactions of the Muslims to the loss of their political power, especially after the 1850s, was to simply seal themselves off from the contemporary world. And that had disastrous consequences for the, Muslim, uh, for the Muslims of India. Because at a later time, when, uh, when uh, the British began to open up uh, government and business positions and educational positions to, uh, to Indians, they invariably favored Hindus, who had uh, mainly been educated by the British, whereas the Muslims had simply uh, closed themselves off to any uh, modern education whatsoever. And so modernism uh, had a very obvious enemy. And that obvious enemy was Sufism. The reasons why they hated Sufism are different from those that we're going to talk about when we, when we get to radical Islam. For, uh, for modernists, Sufism was that entity that was most difficult to grapple with and present, essentially was a millstone around the neck of, of Islam, keeping it back in the Middle Ages. That the otherworldly nature of, uh, of, of Sufis, their reliance upon miracles and dreams and uh, the supernatural was essentially keeping Islam from, the, uh, from a total and complete embrace of the contemporary world. And so it's not surprising that, that for, for the modernists, the main issue was to differentiate themselves from this conservative Sufi interpretation of Islam, to somehow or another integrate uh, Islam into the contemporary world. Somebody like al-Maududi wanted to essentially preach Islam using the language of Marxism. Now, he himself was actually an intensely conservative guy and very anti-communist. But when you read his writings, you, you're essentially reading somebody who is trying to dress Islam up into, uh, into uh, the language of, of contemporary Marxism. And that was equally prominent in, uh, in thinkers that were developing out of, uh, out of Egypt, another powerhouse of, uh, of, of contemporary thought. Um, from that early period, from the, the turn of the 20th century, already uh, various different thinkers and leaders of Al-Azhar had very definitely avoided calling prominent uh, struggles jihad uh, and had oftentimes sided with non-Muslim powers, such as even Britain, uh, in fighting against the Ottoman Empire. And so... There was kind of a sense at that particular time that jihad had pretty much fallen into abeyance. Now that was, uh, that was gradually changed by the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood. Starting in the, uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, began to, just like with, uh, with uh, Abu al-Ala al-Maududi, to try and integrate the contemporary world into uh, Islamic norms. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood basically focused uh, upon, uh, upon political methods. But jihad was a major factor 
in uh, in their self actualization, and it's easy to see the reasons why it was attractive, for the same reasons that uh, that classically had always been prominent, that jihad was kind of a rallying force that uh, could be used to, to target the masses. Nothing would work so much as uh, to gather people around the flag. Um, probably the high point of the Muslim Brotherhood's jihad uh, was the 1948-1949 war uh, with uh, the birth of the State of Israel, in which uh, Muslim brothers in mass joined various different armies and even fought on their own uh, in, order to, uh, in order to realize their jihad. Now, the fact was is that was a, ma- a major failure. And so this led to, uh, to a split inside the, uh, the, the way that the organization looked at various different conflicts that persists to this day. One stream of thought focuses upon the outer enemy, what is known as the far enemy. In this particular case, let's say Israel. But Israel could be taken for any other different uh, country that happens to be non-Muslim. So the far enemy, under this particular perception, needs to be fought, and the fighters uh, will achieve spiritual prominence by fighting it and ultimately defeating it, and then be able to come back to their home country and use that spiritual uh, prestige in order to transform the country into an Islamic state which was the ultimate goal of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, the other approach, which, uh, which came out of, uh, to a large extent, the failure during the 1940s and 1950s to establish a Muslim state was, uh, was uh, simply to, uh, to try and, and pull off a revolution actually in a Muslim country. Now, these two methods uh, continue to, uh, to be bounced back and forth between Muslim radicals to this day. And radicalism, as we'll discuss in the next, uh, the next section, is very much an outgrowth of, a, of a modernist thought. Um, modernism, to a large extent, really is uh, that, uh, that kind of fallback uh, position for prominent ulama even to this very day. And their attitude towards jihad and the jihad literature is a, a fairly ambivalent one. Um, on the one hand, they cannot deny that it is a major issue within Islam. But the fact is, is that most Muslim states achieved their independence without recourse to any sense of jihad. In other words, most of those struggles that took place, such as in Algeria, uh, such as in India, and uh, even in Egypt to some extent, usually were under the banner of nationalism rather than under some sort of an Islamic banner. And so really from the 1920s onwards into even the 1960s, there was a there was a kind of feeling that uh, that that the term jihad really wasn't that useful, or when it was used, it was used in a way that emphasized its uh, a, a sort of non sectarian 
uh, ideology behind it. In other words, at certain times, uh, Christians were referred to as martyrs, uh, people who were prominent secular rulers were referred to as martyrs or as jihad fighters when they had really never spent any of their, uh, their, their careers focusing at all upon jihad. And so it's fairly clear that those sort of, uh, that those sort of, of terminology, uh, ter- terminologies that were being used right there were purely for the sake of, uh, of harking back to history. They had been denuded of all of their, uh, of their uh, Islamic content by that particular time. <clears throat> so those uh, those particular elites uh, that that dominated the um, uh, the ulama in most Muslim countries were fairly ambivalent towards jihad. They would oftentimes write books on jihad, especially when uh, the governments that they were associated with asked them to. But those uh, the books or booklets very carefully emphasize that jihad is sub- a subordinate to the ruler, and basically he is the leader, and he is not to be challenged. They never included anything about uh, that a word of truth in, in the face of iniquitous sultan is, uh, is the best type of jihad. They never included any of those anti-governmental aspects that you find so prominent in, uh, in, in classical jihad. They would f- try and focus as much as possible the violence upon an obvious and broadly agreed upon enemy, usually Israel, but occasionally other various different uh, colonial powers or so forth, sometimes France when the Algerian War was going on, sometimes Britain under other circumstances, and so forth. So the culmination of uh, jihad theory really throughout, uh, throughout the centuries has been that sense of consensus, the sense of conservatism, and the general rejection of those people, such as Ibn Taymiyyah, that sought to break that sort of consensus, sought to see jihad as a spiritual um, and even as a a sacramental uh, part of Islam. In general, it's been very closely associated with the government. Really, it's only been uh, during the last uh, several decades that there's been some sort of question about who is the government, and that has been a problem that uh, that, uh, radical Islam has come to uh, try and fulfill.